We turn in God's inspired word this evening to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, we begin reading at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that heard, that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. 
And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's children. So far we read this portion of Matthew 27. I call your attention this evening to verses 39 and 40 of Matthew 27. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, on this evening in which we commemorate Good Friday and the sufferings that our Savior bore for our salvation, we are reminded of what we sang moments ago, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. My words a cause for scorn they make, the lip they curl, the head they shake, and mocking. Bid me trust the Lord, till he salvation shall afford. When David wrote the psalm, the circumstances were such that he, the anointed king over God's people, was able to sing those terrible lines with application to himself. But he did so because the root of David was in him the Christ of whom he was the type and the shadow. And for that reason, his own suffering and the reproach that he bore was a prefiguration of what would be the shame and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ as he walked this earth. At the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Satan had come to him in the wilderness saying, and scorned him, saying, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And that demonic scorn had continued throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. They called him names, attempting to cast contempt upon him. They did so knowing that that the nature of man is immediately to believe the worst about another when they hear an evil report. And they did so when they called Jesus 
a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Those who hated him said that he cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devil. But the suffering of which we sang in Psalm 22 was most strongly and brutally evident when Jesus hung upon the cross and the poisonous reviling rose up against him as a flood. And the vile venom of hell spewed out the mouths of those passing by who willfully harassed and mocked and insulted the dying Son of God. The tremendous speed with which the history of Christ's suffering is realized is an indication of the bitter hatred that had so long been constrained in the, within the bosom of the enemy. Events followed upon one another in rapid succession. Obviously, if we consider the events through the eyes of our spiritual understanding of the truth that God is God, then we realize that all things took place according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The events follow one another in rapid succession. God's purpose will be realized even in the actions of those who hate his Christ. The leaders of the Jews had planned to take Jesus with subtlety and to kill him secretly without bringing him to a formal trial. And they certainly had not planned to take him on the night of the Passover feast. But Jesus forced the issue according to God's sovereign counsel. And he put to nothing the plans of the Jews. It's for that reason that we find so much confusion in this whole chain of events. Everything's in a state of Confusion and extreme haste all takes place within but a few hours. Within the short span of of about nine hours, Jesus is captured in Gethsemane, bound as a dangerous criminal, taken before Annas, accused in three meetings of the Sanhedrin. He has a, a meeting before Pilate, a hearing before Herod, is mocked and beaten and spit upon and nailed to the cross. Crucified. The tremendous suffering of God's judgment are pressed into a very short time frame upon the person of his own dear son, our Lord. Although in a short time, the darkness of God's judgment would engulf Calvary. Filling the hearts of the enemy with fear and stopping their mouth. At first, when it was still light, and all appeared that Jesus of Nazareth was in their power, the curious mob steadily increasing in number whether to stay for a while or to see and pass by, railed on him and scoffed 
and spewed out their venom upon him. Christ was reviled by those passing by. In our consideration of this text, under that theme, reviled by those passing by, we take note of two things. First of all, the wicked reviling, and secondly, the victorious Christ. We must observe, first of all, that Christ, who is suffering the agonies of hell on the cross, recognizes that the mockery hurled against him is the mockery of hell. Literally, Matthew, as well as Mark, speaks of blasphemy. The term translated reviled is the Greek word blasphemeo. Blasphemy. They that passed by reviled, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. The mockery which man inflicts upon Christ at the cross is in essence nothing less than the mockery of hell. That's how Jesus senses it, and as he senses it, so it is. He alone feels in his own person the reality of of everything, because his entire person faces the righteous and holy God always. Now perhaps you ask how the mockery of those passers-by could possibly become the mockery of hell for the dying Jesus. And when you turn to the Bible, you don't have to look long for an answer to that question because the Bible itself teaches us the nature of the mockery of hell. So the inspired prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, speaks of those who had oppressed the people of God being greeted in death by those who had gone before them to the grave. It's a terrible scene. In the realm of darkness and in the shadow of death, they find those who consume each other. They greet fallen Lucifer who, according to the context, clearly refers historically to the king of Babylon. Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the mount, the, the nations? Now here at Calvary, those who pass by the cross look upon the dying Son of God 
and the superscription hung over his head spew the very language the prophet attributes to those who greet the king of Babylon in hell. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, is blasphemed by being likened unto the wicked king of Babylon. While he descends into the agonies of hell, the children of hell greet him with the revilings of hell. Those lost souls prey upon the soul of him who entered the sphere of sinners. For the law of hell, contrary to the law of God, is that one hates the other. So Christ hangs on that cross and hears himself being reviled by those passing by. But the severity of Christ's humiliation is not determined by the words he hears from the mouths of those within earshot. The severity of his suffering is, is determined by his acute knowledge of the wrath of God against our sin. Those people who shoot out the lip at him are the instruments through which God reveals to Jesus the terribleness of his wrath. And Jesus feels in his very bones and marrow that God is against him. Deeper and deeper into hell he descends. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And the mockery of hell which he faced is the mockery that is embedded in our wicked hearts. Except for the grace of God which roots it out and redeems us from the blood, by the blood of him whom we mock. But this suffering of Christ is even more severe than the suffering of hell for those who find that terrible place, their everlasting state. How so? Because Christ suffers the mockery of hell as the sinless one. It is unspeakably terrible to be a sinner among sinners. We cannot imagine, really, what it will be like for the condemned sinner in hell to experience the rebuke and mockery of those consumed with the same torments as he. Maybe you have heard someone say, as I've heard more than one flippantly say to me, if I go to hell, at least I'll be with my friends. That ought to send chills down your spine. In hell, there are no friends. Only enemies. 
and the bitterness of God's wrath. But when we consider how terrible that is, we still haven't begun to touch the sufferings of Christ. Because he's the holy one among sinners. The clean among the filthy. The living among the dead. And therefore his suffering is a more terrible experience than that of any other person who enters the realm of that experience. No one in all eternity will drink of the mockery of hell so fully as Christ does here through the mouths of those passing by and gazing upon him. And he's fully conscious of the violent wrath of the holy God, of the sputum of hate and rejection that attaches itself to his very forsaken soul and the stench of the fire and the sulfur of hell's mockery clings to his loving spirit. But what we must see in addition is that the content of this mockery constituted a temptation for Jesus. Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Their reviling was a challenge to his power. You recall that in the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus had infuriated the Jews by his cleansing of the temple. And the chief priests had asked him at that time by what authority he had cast out the buyers and sellers from the temple and done his other works, and they asked him for a sign. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2 verse 19. The chief priests had remembered those words of Jesus. Not only had the enemies remembered those words that the disciples had long since forgotten, but they had repeated it. And they spread it around, distorting it as they passed it along. Because that's what the instruments of Satan do. They distort Jesus' words and testimony. Matthew records their report this way. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. In Mark 14, verse 58, we read this charge that the false witnesses brought against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. 
So Jesus' saying had been distorted by the Jews in different ways, but all agreeing that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple. That Jesus had not said. What Jesus said was, destroy this temple, namely the temple of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And when the Jews distorted what Jesus had said, they presented it as if Jesus was a man seeking power. They made Jesus a man who, once he had enough followers, would cause an uprising in Jerusalem and show his power by destroying the temple in Jerusalem and rebuilding it in three days with the help of his multitude of followers. Now he's on the cross. Where's his power? But not only did the passers-by misrepresent Jesus' teaching, they also passed by his cross, shaking their heads with scorn. Most were probably on their way to Jerusalem. They'd come to celebrate the Passover and would be staying for the Sabbath the next day. They had heard of this Jesus. They, they had heard of his wonder-working power. They would have nothing of him. They shook their heads in open contempt for the one who was sent from God. Because that's what the wagging of the head is. It's a show of contempt. It's the expression of hatred by the gesture of the head and neck. Throwing their head back is an expression of their contempt. That's how they pass by, reviling him. How coldly they represent us all by nature. How clearly do they picture those of all ages whose spirituality is only superficial? Who would behold the Lamb of God without considering Him? Who judge without investigating? Who accept and follow the judgments of wicked men without inquiring? Who crucify the Son of God, a fraction. What a terrible picture this is. They consider not and know not and pass into the shadows of death and hell, railing on and blaspheming the very word of God himself. The truth is perverted by blind leaders and blind followers follow the same path. And finally, they tempt him by a direct challenge. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
Their challenge is a challenge that arises from the blindness of their sin. Their sarcasm, the argument of those in whom lies the death of sin. When they repeat the words of the devil who came to Jesus in the wilderness, if thou be the Son of God, they mean, of course, he is not. They don't intend to make him reveal his power. They're declaring he has no power. This challenge had been cast at Jesus more than once and in different forms. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But Jesus must suffer under his own prophecy. There shall no sign be given this generation but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Today, they who are unbelieving clamor for a sign again. But they will not receive it. We who believe receive the sign of Jonah in the broken bread and poured out wine, the sign of the broken body and crucified blood of our Savior, also set before us in the preaching of the gospel. No time seemed better for Jesus to show his divine power. In fact, to all unbelief, it's now or never. And there was no question in the minds of those who railed on him that it would be never. He was dying. You see, beloved, they had constructed a false theology which left no room for faith in a Messiah who would suffer in the state of humiliation. They would not submit to the scriptures which taught them repeatedly that the Messiah of God would reach his glorification only through the experience of suffering in willing obedience to God. They rejected the truth of God's word. And therefore they rebuke him with the challenge, come down from the cross. But Jesus answers them nothing. His name was the last Adam. And as in the first Adam all die, even so in Christ the last Adam shall all be made alive. For Jesus to come down from the cross was divinely impossible. Not because of a lack of power on his part, but because then his promise about building the temple would not be realized. And Jesus is the temple builder. 
He will walk the way of obedience to God, though that way be the way of suffering all the agonies of hell. He's the victorious Christ. Christ is the one who builds God's temple. To understand the idea of the temple, we have to remember the beautiful truth of God's covenant. The temple's not that beautiful edifice in Jerusalem. The idea of the temple is God dwelling with his people in such a way that they are partakers of his covenant life, his fellowship and friendship and love. The temple of God with men is not that building in Jerusalem, but it's the realization of his covenant life with his people. The relationship in which love flows freely. He loves them and walks with them and blesses them and they love him and walk with him and obey him. They serve him. That temple of God was realized in its earthly form in paradise with the relationship of Adam to God. God dwelling with Adam in perfect fellowship in the beauty of holiness. That was the temple of God in its earthly form. But that temple was destroyed in the fall. God had something better in mind for his people. That's probably the chief theme of the book of Hebrews. The better thing for God's, for God's people. And that better thing is the heavenly temple in Christ. That was God's eternal counsel and purpose in all things. The temple in Jerusalem was but a picture, a faint earthly shadow of that heavenly temple. That picture of God dwelling with his people in the fellowship of his covenant was seen in the most holy place where God dwelt symbolically in the cloud and in the Ark of the Covenant and in the holy place where the people of God gathered also symbolically in the altar and the table of showbread and in the candlestick. But there was a veil between the two showing separation. The earthly temple in Jerusalem was only the picture of that which would be realized in Christ. The essence of the temple, God dwelling with us, was realized with and in Jesus Christ. The Word become flesh, full of grace and truth. Christ came to build the temple the temple which we destroy. We by nature are covenant breakers, enemies of God, who mind the things of sin and death, who depart from the ways of the Holy One, who rail upon the Christ of God. Time and again we violate His covenant. 
treating him as our enemy rather than our friend sovereign, unwilling, incapable of dwelling in his presence. That's our sad confession, isn't it? That's what we are like by nature. We confess that we lie in the midst of death and that our life is only in Christ Jesus because He came to build the temple of God's covenant fellowship upon the foundation of God's righteousness. Jesus is the temple builder. He lays that foundation by uniting Himself with our sinful flesh. When I contemplate that, that the eternal Son of God united Himself with our sinful flesh, taking upon Himself all the guilt of my sins, not only, but of all His people throughout all ages, I can't comprehend it. I believe But how unfathomable are the depths, how unattainable to my human understanding is the height of that wonder. And then he glorifies the temple. God glorifies it in the resurrection of his Son, our Lord. And after he ascends into heaven, he realizes that temple in the heart of his people by his Holy Spirit, calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. By that Spirit, he dwells with us and in us, working in us that profound wonder of sanctification, He speaks to us by His Word and Spirit, giving us more and more to enjoy the fellowship of His covenant light. And He shall continue to build that temple until the everlasting covenant of God is complete. God dwelling with His people, walking among them, speaking with them, wiping all tears from their eyes. For so God will be seen as all in all with Jesus Christ, his Son, the builder of the temple. You see then, people of God, the divine irony of the events recorded in our text. While they reviled the Christ of God who hung on that cross, pointing to him as powerless and unable to destroy the temple any longer. While they were saying to themselves, the temple now is safe. And while they were railing on Jesus, thou temple destroyer, come down from the cross. While they were so thinking and so speaking, They themselves were busy destroying the temple in Jerusalem. 
the temple of Jesus' body was so connected with that external temple in Jerusalem that when the temple of Jesus' body is destroyed, there's no room any longer for the temple in Jerusalem. And so the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Divine irony is what we see through the eyes of faith. While they are destroying the temple of Jesus' body, they are at the same time destroying their own building in Jerusalem, the joy of their external religion. And while they are destroying the temple, Jesus rebuilds it. So he said, destroy this temple, and I will build it. While they challenge him to come down from the cross, he is laying the cornerstone of the temple of God that's everlasting. He cannot come down. Not because he's unable physically, It looks that way as he hangs there apparently helpless and powerless. It seems like the powers of darkness are triumphant and Jesus is defeated, but he cannot come down from the cross because he's at work and is victorious in the way of obedience to the will of his Father. The power of obedience to his Father's will keeps Jesus on the cross that the temple might be built for you and for me who are given him by the Father. It's his act of willing obedience, his act of perfect love descending into the depths of hellish agonies voluntarily that is the atonement for our sins. That's why through the cross, a man such as I, and men and women such as you, can partake of God's covenant fellowship which the temple represented. That's ours. Only because our Lord Jesus Christ bore all the sufferings of God's wrath, including all the reviling of those passing by. Looking at the cross in that light, you will certainly realize that there's a power far above the power of men that keeps the man of sorrows on the accursed tree. There's a reason other than the reason that these thoughtless passers-by express in their sarcastic mockery. Jesus remains on the cross, not coming down until all was finished, 
because of the infinite, unfathomable love of God for his own. The love of the Savior to his Father and those given him by the Father. And therefore we enter that covenant life of God that we also should manifest that covenant life, being followers of God as dear children, looking forward to the final resurrection morning when the temple of God shall be perfected into all eternity. Amen. Gracious Father, our hearts are filled with wonder at thy grace, grace beyond measure, bestowed upon such sinners as we, we thank Thee for our Lord and Savior and His perfect work saving us to Thy name's honor and glory. Amen.